we hear once or twice a year maybe, and uh, we don't hear them for another year or two, and just a good reminder of why Jesus came and uh, came to die for us. Uh, born to die upon Calvary, the old song says. Uh, so take your Bibles tonight and turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. I don't know that I have ever, and I think this is a first, I don't know that I've ever preached through two chapters of the Bible in one message. Uh, but we're going to do it tonight, Lord willing. So, uh, And we might not ever do it again. So uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And when we get to chapter 5 and 6, remember last week the focus is all on the Ark of the Covenant. And the people had lost the Ark in their battle with the Philistines. And uh, they're in a position where God seems missing. The word Ichabod was used. And uh, the fact that glory has departed. We talked last week in closing about how that Eli was the physical representation as the priest uh, of the glory of the Lord. We talked about the ark being the, uh, the glory of the Lord and the, uh, the representation of God's presence and how that was gone now. Eli is dead now, and it made the, uh, the, cleared the way for Samuel to be the head of the spiritual realm in Israel. And we know that Eli's sons were killed in battle with the Philistines. Uh, so what would happen? What was going on as they were in a spiritual dearth, a spiritual loss here? Meanwhile, we look over in the Philistines' camp and in their uh, country and their cities. Uh, they were excited to have a new trophy to show off in their temple. But little did they know what they had, and they were getting ready to realize that they were in just as big of a mess as the Israelites were. And uh, we'll show you on the map here, uh, but just remember kind of location-wise uh, where, get that map up there, guys, uh, where they, the ark began in Shiloh. It went to Ebenezer where uh, the battle took place there outside of Aphek, and then it ends up down in Ashdod, the very first stop along the way. And the problem we see is they did exactly what the Israelites did. They diminished the value of God. They diminished the value of God. That was their problem, just like the Israelites' problem. So if you're taking notes tonight, you can write down, number one, the reality. The reality. The people bring their trophy to Ashdod. It was one of five chief cities of, for the Philistines, located about 23 miles from Jerusalem. And as they get here, uh, we see a name in uh, the first few verses in chapter 5. And his name is Dagon, their uh, principal god that they worship. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Uh, Dagon was an interesting looking uh, idol. And you have a picture there in your notes and it'll be on the screen. He had the body of a man, uh, but the bottom half of a fish. He was the god of fertility, the god of vegetation. He was their supreme god. It was believed, as far as mythology, that Dagon was the son of Baal. And we know the name Baal from the Old Testament. They worship that false idol. Uh, but they would realize, hey, I'm gonna, we're going to bring the uh, ark into the temple, set it right next to Dagon, so when people come in to worship tomorrow morning, they'll see our trophy on display. They'll be able to know that the God of the Israelites was no match for Dagon. That was their hope. 
And they knew their history in chapter 4 and verse number 8. Remember we talked about last week how that they knew the God of the Israelites, his track record. When they said, woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. This was the God that the Egyptians couldn't defeat. And now it seemed for a brief moment in time that their army had done something that the strongest military force in the world couldn't accomplish. So they were high as a kite. They were excited. What a victory they had won, or so they thought. But they placed the ark directly in front of Dagon, a prime spot. And what's interesting is how it's referenced here. Look back at chapter 4 and verse number 11, just for reference. I want want you to see one spot, and then we'll jump back into chapter 5. It says, chapter, 11, uh, chapter 4 and verse 11, and the ark of God was taken. Now, if you follow that out, verse 11, verse 13, verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, verse 21, verse 22, all again and again, it's the ark of God, ark of God, ark of God. We get to chapter 5 and verse number 1, and the Philistines took the ark of God. Uh, verse number 2, when the Philistines took the ark of God, God. It's always in these seven or eight references called the Ark of God. Say, Pastor, what's the big deal? We know that it's the Ark of the Covenant. It's God's representation. It's, it was the presence of God. But the wording here for the Ark of God is different than what it was called before it was captured. See, the Ark of God is a generic bland term. Very simple. It could mean the Ark of a God, not the one true God. We see it called here, but in verse number 3, what seems like a small thing becomes a big thing in verse 3. And it says, when they of Ashdod arose early in the morning, hey, it's time to go to church. We're going to go to temple. We're going to worship Dagon. And we're going to see all the buzz of what these people have been talking about. This new trophy piece that they brought back. What did they see? Behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before, not the ark of God. The ark of the Lord. Say, Pastor, what's the big deal between the two? The word used for Lord is the word Yahweh, which means the ever-existing one. The one who has always been and always will be. So in this display, what they thought was just a trophy piece, they come in expecting to see the God that they worship and a trophy And they realize that their God is no match for the all-existing one. They realize all of a sudden, man, uh, was there a wind gust in here? I mean, is this Stuart strapped? Uh, You know, is this this just something where it's just an accident or somebody, you know, vacuuming it up and just accidentally bumping? I mean, this is a statue. They don't just fall over. So what do they do? They set him in his place again. Fallen before the ark of the Lord. Why is it the ark of the Lord? Why is that a big deal? Because the title shows power. See, they had a God, but they didn't have the Lord. They had Dagon, but they didn't have Yahweh. And there is only one God who can ever hold that title. And it is our God. See, you and I, from time to time, may set up gods or idols in our own heart, our own lives. But the biggest question is, do we have a Lord? See, you can have a God and not have a Lord. When you have a Lord, that means you have a Savior. 
See, you and I can worship things. We can worship careers and people and, uh, and a pursuit of happiness and all of these different things. But when you have the Lord, your life is different. What is it about your life that indicates that you have a Lord? What is it about Him that shows that He is in control? They come into worship that morning and He's laying on the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. But that's not the big problem. Look at verse 4. And when they arose early on the morning, uh, on the morrow morning, all right, tomorrow morning, the next day, all right, hey, we got him back in place and we got everything secured. We know that he's where he's supposed to be. All right, we, we've got that. Come back the next morning, what do they find? Dagon, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before, here it is again, the ark of the Lord. But what's interesting is that. Something else has happened. Look at verse 4. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. The head representing the wisdom of their false god. The hands, the arms representing the might of Dagon. Both of them cut off. One translator said chopped off. Only the stump was left. And in all this, God is showing his supremacy to the Philistines. See, they may have defeated the Israelites in battle, but there was no way they could defeat the God of the Israelites. No way. They were no match. And if God could do that to their false idol, imagine what he could do to them. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For is all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Colossians 1.16, for by him were all things created that in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Everything we see cuts off the head and the hands. It's a strong display that God was greater. And no matter what we face today in this day and age, God is still greater. Greater than all things. See, he didn't just come to be born in a manger to show us a cute nativity display that we show every December. He came to show us his love in a cross and his power in an empty tomb. Those were the displays. This was a display of God's great power. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. Blaise Pascal said the single greatest distinguishing feature of the omnipotence of God is that our imagination gets lost thinking about it. We get lost thinking about how powerful he truly is we see that the hand of the lord look at verse number five therefore neither the priests of dagon nor any that came into dagon's house tread on the threshold of dagon and ashdod unto this day they put up yellow caution tape hey we're not going back in there this is off limits we're not allowed to go back in there could it be that they didn't want anybody else seeing the display that they had set up but verse six it says but the hand of the lord was heavy Upon them of Ashdod. You think about the word heavy. We talked about last week. How that Eli was heavy. 
Uh, the root word of glory, kevod, the root word here is heavy. The glory that was departed from Israel was on full display at Ashdod. Full display here. The hand of the Lord was glorious upon them of Ashdod. Uh, see, the Lord even strikes them physically. Now, hey, I, I'm preaching through Song of Solomon, so I have no problem preaching on Emrods, okay? Uh, so this, this is just one of those things. Uh, but it was a physical uh, wound, a tumor, a swelling, and it is exactly what that word sounds like, okay? Uh, so uh, and you, if you want a greater description of where it's located, you can go to verse 9, which we won't read tonight. Uh, but we look at this portion of Scripture, and God shows them the reality of what they're living with. They are living with a God who is punishing them now for what they had done. They had tried to disrupt God's people. Tried to come against God's plan. And God is now punishing them for that. The reality, they were face to face with a force that could not be reckoned with. They had no idea. So what do they do? Number two, we see the removal. They weren't stupid. All right, look at verse number 7. So when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, all of these things had happened, and the Emrods and everyone has been smitten, the ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us. That's pretty smart. All right, now it's not the ark of God. Now it's not the ark of the Lord. Now it's connecting to a people group. The ark of the God of Israel. Shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, What shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? Six times in these last few verses of this chapter, the ark of the God of Israel. The ark of the God of Israel. What are we going to do? And they carried the ark of the God of Israel about thither. Look at verse 9. And it was so, after they carried the ark, uh, carried it about, the hand of the Lord was great, uh, was against the city of very great destruction. Verse 10, therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass as the ark of God came to Ekron. The Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought about the ark of the God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. What are they thinking? Here's another city. Look at verse number 11. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it go again to his own place and it not slay us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten with the emrods. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. The best course of action in their minds was a change of location. If we can get this thing out of our city, it won't be our problem anymore. But they did it the same way that we address our sin at times. They didn't remove it from the country. They just removed it from their city. Say, so, Pastor, what, what is that? See, we like to cover our sin, not remove our sin. We like to put our sin away in a box tucked away and we forget about it for a time, but it's not gone. We don't properly deal with our sin. We might ask the Lord to forgive us, but there's no repentance from our sin. It takes both. There has to be an admission of guilt. Lord, this is what this is. This is sinful. This is wrong. I should not have done this. Forgive me. And then there must be a turning away from that sin. Both parts. They weren't ready to relinquish control of the ark quite yet. 
from city to city, different place, Gath, Ekron. Now they get to the place in chapter 6 where they say, hey, it's time. Uh, We can't do this anymore. It's got to be gone. Someone said, delay is a kind of denial. When I put something off and I say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm, I'm just going to uh, hope that it will get better tomorrow. It's denial. Richard Baxter said, all the longer your delay, the more your sin gets strength and rooting. If you cannot bend a twig, how will you be able to bend it when it is a tree? We allow that twig to become a tree and it's harder to deal with. They moved to Gath, same results. They moved to Ekron, same results. And the people didn't want it. The news of the ark is growing and uh, keeping the ark, the punishment was great. And the news spread so they realized that they have to remove completely the ark. James chapter 1 verse 14 But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. In each one of these instances, the ark of the God of Israel, over and over, people distraught that God was leaning on them. I wonder how many times God has to lean into us for us to address what we know has to be removed. How often does God have to press on us the hand of the Lord being heavy uh, if you've ever heard somebody say we don't it's not that bad you know, if it's not that bad then it's not that good the simple analogy first uh, John chapter 1 verse 8 John said if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us but it's not just the sins that we commit it's the sins that we omit it's those sins of commission and omission, those sins that I willfully commit and the ones that I know I should do but I don't do. That's what we see in James chapter 4 verse 17. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. When I know I should do something. See, we're typically not blatant in our sin. We're not just flamboyant in our sin. We're good at not doing the things that we know we should do. It's that reading of the Bible every day and my walk with the Lord and my communion with Him and my spending time in prayer communicating with Him and being faithful to church or witnessing to others or giving of my resources or serving, all of those things I know that I should do, but when I don't do them, it's still sin. Still sin that must be dealt with. Thomas Brooks said, as sinful commissions will stab the soul. So sinful omissions will starve the soul. Stabbing the soul, starving the soul. Is there something in our lives that God is leading us to do and we're simply not doing it? The reality was they had a problem. The removal was the answer, but let's look at the recovery. Go up to verse number 7 of chapter number 6. They have this long conversation in the first six verses. How are we going to rightly remove this problem? They send the ark away with gifts that are kind of interesting when you think about them uh, because they craft five golden mice, all right, which is just kind of unique, to represent the five cities that were afflicted. Now we say, well, you know, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's just that's what they 
felt like they designed, or maybe their, uh, you know, Walt Disney was on their team, or so, you know, something. Uh, but they had all these five golden mice. All right, uh, I don't know whether they're blind or not, but uh, five golden mice to represent. Some of y'all get that later. Uh, the five cities, and then five golden emeralds. Can you imagine explaining what these are? I mean, did they leave a note? I mean, uh, here just. Want to be a blessing, you know. Um, but representing the leadership, which is another why, why in the world. Uh, I don't want to go there. Uh, so here's, here's what they did. They loaded the ark on a new cart. Look at verse 7. Now therefore make a new cart and take two milch kine on which there hath come no yoke and tie the kind to the cart and bring their calves home from them. Take the ark of the Lord, lay it upon the cart, put the jewels of gold which he returned him for a trespass offering and a coffer by the side. Send it away that it may go and see if it goeth up by the way of his own coast to Beth Shemesh. Alright, here's the analogy. Let's take these two female cows that have never been tied up to a yoke. They've never been put together. This is a perfect storm that they're creating. They're not used to being connected to a cart. They've never been used this way before. They have babies at home that they're nursing. They're not ready for this challenge. But let's connect them to a cart and let's just send them out in a pasture and see what happens. Uh, let's see the direction that they go. And if they go to Beth Shemesh along this particular road, we'll know that God allowed all this to happen. But then it says, in verse number uh, verse number. Uh, uh, nine and, and see if it goeth up. Then he saith, then he hath done this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that smote us. It was a chance that happened to us. Maybe all of this is just a grand coincidence. Maybe this just all happened. And maybe it was meant to happen. Maybe Dagon is punishing for. Maybe Baal is punishing. Maybe one of our other gods that we serve is punishing us. We don't know, but we're going to use this litmus test to see. What happens? It says in verse number 12, And the kind took the straight way to the way of Beth Shemesh. These two cows start walking towards the place that they said, Hey, if, if it's God doing this, He'll lead them. Which is amazing to me because they're acknowledging that God had the ability to lead them. Not by chance, but by providence. They're testing God. And what happens? It says, they went along the highway, lowing as they went, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them under the border of Beth Shemesh. And they of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. They lifted up their eyes and saw the ark. And what happened? They rejoiced to see it. Hey, all of a sudden, can you imagine these guys out mowing the grass and reaping this harvest? And All of a sudden, they look up, and here's these cows and this card and there's the ark and they rejoice you know the lord leads those cows right down the path so the philistines would see a great display of his providence but the people when they arrived in israel the people would see a display of god's power they didn't have anything to do with getting the ark back they weren't involved in this secret coup of, you know, how can we send in, you know, the secret service? And how can we send in all of, the, all of our black ops and get in there and get it out and bring it back? None of that. This was a work of God. 
See, these people had no intention on following the Lord, but they still wanted to know who was behind all this. I love the fact that God does not require us to do the work that only He can do, but simply be faithful in what we can do. That's our job. Remember when Paul spoke to the Gentiles on Mars Hill in Acts 17, verse 32. and When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. In verse 34, Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. When we do our part, we will experience these three different groups of people. Some will say that's foolishness. Some will say, let me think about it. And some will say, I want that. But it's not my job to determine which group of people I'm ministering to. My job is to throw out the seed. Your job is to throw out the seed. It's not your job to reap the harvest. It's your job to simply cast the seed. See, the church should not be consumed with numbers. And I know that numbers are a part of that, and we we track all those different things, and it's helpful, but the church should be consumed with faithfulness. How can we be more faithful? How can I be more faithful? Why? So that others will see me and acknowledge? No, no. So that God gets the glory. Remember, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos, but ministers by whom he believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You know, if Paul would have stopped right there, that would have been enough. But I'm glad he clarifies the statement in verse 7. He says, So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Paul is saying, if you don't have God's blessing, It doesn't matter who's behind the scenes doing work. You have to have God's blessing. See, God is not concerned with your fruit count. The quote that's on the screen, God is not concerned with your fruit count. He is concerned about your faithfulness. God could care less. Man, I led somebody else to Christ. That's awesome. But God just wants you to be faithful. It's not about how much fruit you acquire. It's how faithful you are. It's about being faithful with God, what God has given to you. Are you and I faithful? These people see the ark in verse 13 and immediately rejoice. You know, what's interesting is that they take everything here in verse 14. The cart came into the field of Joshua. This is not Joshua from Moses. Okay, this is another Joshua. A Beth Shemite. And stood there where there was a great stone, and they clave the wood of the cart and offered the kind a burnt offering unto the Lord. Now, get this picture. The Philistines gave them everything they needed to worship. The Philistines gave them everything that they needed to worship. Say, what's what's the big deal? You could make a case here. For taking the world's goods and giving them and honoring God with what the world gives us. Hey, we understand that God is the originator, but the hospital is the one who's writing the check. Or the the office is the one that's writing the check. Those are the world's goods given through God to you, and you can use them to worship God with. God gives you things along the way through others that you can use for Him. That can be money, that can be talent, that can be resources. 
all while not compromising our focus, and that's the worship of the true God. They took what the Philistines gave them and they worshiped God with it, just like the children of Israel did when they left Egypt. Remember, the the Egyptians said, what do you want? Take whatever you want of our stuff, you can have it. What did that stuff eventually do? They boiled it down, they heated it up, and they turned it into the Ark of the Covenant and all of the furniture pieces that they used for worship. There's a great principle and pattern that God gives us things through others and sometimes weird circumstances to worship Him. He provides those things. I love the fact that we can use all different kinds of methods to reach people. Whether that's an Easter egg hunt or that's a a fun fest or special event. All with the intent of giving the gospel. I love that. And you can't apologize for that. Because methods come and go, but our message should always be consistent. Messages don't change. See, when our focus becomes the what instead of the why, we've lost our vision. When I'm more concerned with what's the next event and how many people are going to be there and what can my kids get from it, that's not the purpose. The purpose is not what I can do for me. The purpose is how is God going to use that to bring people to Him? That's the purpose. The what is the method in which we cast the net. The why is the gospel impacting their hearts. That's why we do what we do. Why fun fest, egg hunt, parade, fireworks, gas giveaway, so that people can find the hope that you and I have. That's why we do what we do. But which one are we focused on? Am I focused on, man, that is a nice cart. Man, that is a nice, uh, those are two nice cows. Now, those would serve me well. No, that wasn't theirs. None of that stuff went home with those men. They chopped it all up. They broke it all down. And they worshiped God with it. See, this is a great thing. But lastly, the problem in all of this is it didn't stay great. It was a great thing that went bad really quick. Look at verse number 19. They're worshiping. They're celebrating. They're sharing. They're talking about uh, the mice and, uh, unfortunately, the emeralds. They're talking about all of that. And then we see the reminder. Look at verse 19. And he smote the men of Bethshemesh. Now, all of a sudden, they go from worship to all of them are dying. Uh, what, What has happened here? What's wrong here? Because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Now, you could make a case that would make sense. Hey, you know, we need to inspect this and make sure that this is not a Trojan horse. You know, there's not a bomb in this thing, and uh, they're trying to get us, and uh, we got to make sure that they didn't steal the Ten Commandments that are inside, and uh, we got to make sure they didn't mess with anything. You could make a case that what they're doing is a good thing. They're, they're trying to be helpful, but in trying to do what they thought made sense, they're actually defiling the item that represented God's presence. We could say the exact same thing. Remember, the the high priest was only allowed into the presence of God one time a year. You know, he could have said very easily, oh man, I saw a wild animal darting under there into the holy holy. I got to go get it out. And breaking that threshold, he would have died. Why? Not because what he was doing was bad, but because he violated 
God's directive. It's the same thing in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 6. Remember, David is trying to get the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And they load this thing on a cart, and these two brothers are driving the cart, trying to get it there. And one of them, the, the cart shakes, and the ark starts to slide, and Uzzah puts up his hand to stop it. Not a bad thing. But in doing so, he violated God's principle and God's directive. And what happens? God killed him. God killed him. He said, Pastor, that's extreme. I think we all know by now we serve a pretty extreme God. And a pretty holy God. It takes His holiness seriously. And His directives must be followed. And even in the midst of all of this great recovery, there's a response that is consistent with the character of God. God is holy and righteous even when we're not. That's the bottom line. God is holy and righteous. Verse 20, And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? This tragedy, what, is they, what stands out to them? Not the fact that the tragedy happened, but their holy God. They said, holy Lord God. See, the beginning of the chapter, the Philistines are saying, where can this thing go? The end of the chapter ends the exact same way, different people group. The Israelites, where can this thing go? Where can we put this? Verse 21, they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come down and fetch it up to you. Hey, come get this thing. Get it away from us. Where can it go? You know, it shows us that God operates with two main things that lead to glory. And here they are suffering and humiliation. Think about it. The people suffered in battle and lost the glory of God. They were humiliated at the hands of the enemy. But here we see the glory come back to them and they immediately respond with worship. Suffering, humiliation, glory, worship. That pattern. Say, Pastor, big deal. I mean, what, what, what's, How does that connect to me? When we get to the New Testament, the glory of the Scripture is Jesus. He is the glory of God. But the glory of God was trampled by mankind. And He suffered at the hands of sinful man. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And he, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. Suffering, humiliation, glory. All connected. God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Glory, worship. Suffering, humiliation, glory, and worship. His glory was removed for a season through suffering, and it's given back never to be relinquished. We might think, well, that's all, it's, that's all well and good, Pastor, but that's talking about Jesus. It's not talking about me. But remember, Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, 
For I reckon, Paul was a southern boy. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Suffering, humiliation. Will there be hard days when I have to suffer for the Lord? Uh, Paul said, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Will I be humiliated among men? Ask yourself that question if you're going to go to work and you're going to start talking about Jesus to your coworkers. Will you be humiliated? Most likely. Suffering humiliation, but it leads to glory because he gets the glory when we sow those seeds. It's him, not us. It's his purpose, not my purpose. So that one day I can be in his presence and worship the glory of God. Suffering humiliation, glory, which leads to worship. Am I enduring that suffering? And am I allowing God's work to be formulated in my heart? To prepare me for whatever glory he will receive from it. Father, thank you so much for your word. and Thank you for the suffering and the humiliation that we face time and time again. From time to time. Lord, and help us not to focus on the suffering. But Lord, help us to focus on the glory that you will get from the suffering. From the humiliation. So that we in turn can... Glorify God and worship you. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, thank you for its application to us. Lord, help us to see that sometimes the hardships that we go through are merely to show the glory of God. And so that we can glorify and worship you in a greater way. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.